The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in Psalm number 107, the 107th Psalm, reading from verse 23 to verse 32, from the 23rd to the 32nd verse in Psalm number 107. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then... They cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are stilled. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Now those who attend here regularly on Sunday evenings will know that we are looking at this great psalm for the fifth time. I need scarcely say, having read those words to you, that it is one of the great, greatest psalms in the entire book of Psalms. If you judge it merely as poetry, if you're interested in dramatic descriptions, well, you must concede that there is nothing in literature anywhere known to men in any country which is superior to this. But we are interested in it not uh, from the standpoint of literature only. We are interested in it and are looking at it and analyzing it together in this way because of its great message. Psalmists were not interested in art for art's sake. They didn't write poetry because they liked writing poetry. They were men of God. They were interested in truth. They were concerned that others should come to a knowledge of the truth. That's at the back of everything. That is why this book is so different from every other book. It's primarily the message that matters, the form. The form has its importance. And as I've suggested, even the form is superior to that of any other literature. But it's the matter, the substance that really counts. And I say this man has written his psalm because of the great message that he has to deliver. He's concerned that men and women should give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. That's how he opens out. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the north and the south from the east and from the west. Now, why does he say this? Well, he's already told us in those words. This man has got a great thesis. He's got a great message. And, of course, it's the message of the whole Bible. There is only one message in the Bible, and it's given us in all this almost infinite variety of forms and of ways. But there's only one message, and it's this. That all the troubles that we're aware of individually and collectively in this world are the result of one thing only, and that is what is called sin. That it is a universal condition. That there is nobody in this world who is not a sinner. But that the devil in his subtlety persuades us that only some are sinners because we're not all absolutely identical in everything. But the case of the Bible is that there's only one disease, though it may present itself in the form of a great variety of symptoms. But that there's only one disease. To summarize it, I can put it like this. The Bible says that there is one common cause of 
all our troubles, and there is one common salvation. And that is that which is to be found in God. That all men need God, and that no man will be delivered until he has turned to God. That's the whole message of the Bible. That is the very thing that it sets out to, to state. And here this man puts it in his own pictorial, poetic, dramatic manner. Now then, he chose to do it like this. His idea, I say, is this, that the appearances differ. Actually, beneath the appearances, there is no difference at all. Oh, how important that theme is. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. That's how a poet puts it. Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. Same thing. Now, that's what this man sets out to say. But he doesn't merely make his proposition, lay down his proposition. He sets out to prove it. He says, now I'm going to paint you four pictures. And he says, I suggest to you that at first you'll come to the conclusion that there's nothing in common in the four pictures. And yet he goes on to say, I want to show you that in each case, the real condition is precisely the same. So he sets out and paints his pictures. You remember them. The first was the picture of a number of people wandering in a wilderness looking for a city of habitation in which to dwell and couldn't find it and getting desperate and losing their way and night comes on and they don't know where they are nor what to do. They cry unto the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses and took them to the city of habitation. The second picture. Men in the corner of prison cells bound with fetters of iron with bars of iron covering the holes, the windows, great gates of brass shutting the prison out from the world. An entirely different picture, apparently, but it isn't, you know, because we are told about them, likewise, that they cried out unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. The third picture. Quite different on the surface. We were in a bedroom. We were looking at somebody, obviously, in a very enfeebled state and condition. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meats. They draw nigh unto the gates of death, wasted, wizened, cachectic, fading away, life ebbing out. Oh, not in a wilderness, not in a prison, just an ordinary bedroom, but pale and languid and lifeless, scarcely able to move and on the point of death. Well, you say there's nothing in common. I say there is. For we are told of them likewise that they cried out unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. You see, the point is, this man says, that in each case it's the same thing. He takes these different forms. You see, one man is, you go around a hospital ward, you look at the man in bed number one, there he is propped up and gasping for breath, he's got pneumonia, desperately ill. Look at the man in bed number two. Well, he's lying flat on his back. No movement whatsoever, no struggle. Indeed, the difficulty is to decide whether he's still alive or not. Is he still breathing? He seems to be so quiet. Yes, but the point is, you see, that they're both ill. They're both in a diseased condition. It isn't the difference between the dramatic manifestations of disease and the quietness of another that matters. The common thing is that both are diseased and both are equally helpless unless something drastic is done and the right medicament is applied. That's precisely this man's case in this 107th Psalm. Well, now then, we come on this evening to this uh, fourth picture, his last picture. The one that uh, I've already read to you as my text for this evening. And again, of course... Uh, we start by observing that uh, the scene is, sh is so shifted that really we tend to say, well, there's something wrong with this theory. Surely this isn't the same because we are no longer in a wilderness. We are no longer in a prison cell. We are no longer in a sick bedroom. Where are we? Well, we're on the high seas in mid-ocean. And he proceeds to give us his dramatic and his most graphic and living picture of the whole situation. Now let me again remind you of what he tells us. Here we are looking at the picture of a terrible storm at sea. 
And uh, you notice the way in which he puts it. We see a little boat, a big one if you like, it doesn't matter what its size is, but there is this boat on the ocean. And it is in terrible trouble, buffeted, beaten, battered by these raging billows and the howling gale. You notice how he puts it all to us. He tells us that there are certain that he raiseth the stormy wind and they, it lifts up the waves thereof. Have you seen the Atlantic rollers? Have you seen the billows? Have you seen those gigantic waves coming and rising like mountains and hurling themselves? That's what he's talking about. And they're hurling themselves at that little ship. Then uh, he proceeds to a description of the people on board the ship. And it's rather important that we should realize that the next thing that he says rarely refers to the people and not to the waves. I'm reading verse 26. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths. Now that's not a description of the waves, although it is true of the waves. But what he's there describing is the men in the boat, because he goes on. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths, their soul is melted because of trouble. And anybody who's been in a storm at sea knows exactly what this means. You're raised up by that terrific wave and then down you go again. And you're up and you're down backwards and forwards. It's a, such a, a perfect description of what takes place under such terrifying conditions. There they are and he tells us not only that, that their souls are melted because of trouble. They're in a state of acute distress. There they are apparently at the mercy of these breakers and these waves, these billows, they don't know what to do. They're up and they're down. And not only that, he then comes to a more minute and accurate description of these people. He says that they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. They're not drunk, they're perfectly sober. But because of what's happening to them and happening to the boat on which they are, they can't balance themselves and they're hurled against corridors from side to side and from partition to partition. You look at them and you say, that man's drunk, he's lost his balance. No, but it's the storm, it's the action of these billows buffeting and battering away at the ship in which they, they, they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. And the last thing he tells us about them is this, and that they're at their wit's end. Now it's important we should understand that. He means by that that they don't know what to do, that every possibility they can think of has been absolutely exhausted. Well, there it is. It's a picture of absolute hopelessness. Everything that can be done by mariners and navigators and all who are experts in these matters, it's all been done, but it avails them nothing. It's no use giving instructions. They've been given and they've been carried out, but nothing happens. The ship is absolutely helpless at the mercy of the waves and is on the point of going down at any moment. They don't know what's going to happen. On the point of sinking. And of course, they're far away from that haven for which they originally set out. All hope is gone. They're abandoned to their fate. And the next thing you expect to hear of is that suddenly the ship is engulfed by some particularly gigantic wave or that she's split in two and down she goes out of sight and is swallowed up and never seen again. But of course that isn't what he tells us. He tells us that at the height of this storm and in the utter calamity in which they're placed, they cried out unto the Lord in their trouble. And he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So he bringeth them into their desired haven. Now, my friends, that I want to suggest to you is nothing but uh, a very dramatic representation of the message of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
This man was first and foremost dealing with facts. But uh, his whole purpose in writing the psalm, it's perfectly obvious if you read the entire psalm, is to give the message of salvation. His point is that whatever your predicament, whatever your position, if you do genuinely cry out unto the Lord, he will deliver you. In other words, it's a great Old Testament picture of the New Testament gospel. You've got another one. We read it together at the beginning, how our Lord with the disciples on that occasion, you see, was tired and he was asleep in the stern of the vessel. And there they were. The storm arose and the waves were rising and the water was coming in. They tried bailing it out, but things were going from bad to worse. And they rushed to him and said, Master, terrorist, though not that we perish. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And there was a great calm. Perfectly true. An event in history, something that actually happened. Yes, yes, but you see, it's a picture beyond all that. And it's this picture, of the, the, it's the truth that is pictured in that way that really matters. That is the whole of salvation. That's the message of the Christian gospel uh, to this world this evening. Now then, what's it mean? Let me, as briefly as I can, put it in a slightly different way to you. Let me present it to you as the gospel message. This is just another of the pictures, the one of the four pictures which this man gives us of life as the result of sin. If you like it in a more particular manner, we can put it like this. It is a picture of frail men facing and battling with the storms of life. That's what he's got here. So that he's no longer, you see, painting a picture of sinners missing the mark, nor of sinners slavery and bondage. Nor of sin as a disease that robs us and eats out the vitals of our spiritual nature. Oh, I think that here he's depicting to us the violence of sin. The violent character of sin. The turmoil to which sin inevitably and always leads. Now, this is a very common picture in the Bible. As it is, uh, of course, and of necessity, as the result of that, a common picture in our hymns. The hymn writers have been very quick uh, to take up this picture. It lends itself so perfectly to the presentation of the gospel, so that you get it very commonly. And the picture is, I say, of life in this world as a kind of voyage. What is your birth into this world? Well, it's nothing, if you like, but embarking. You step on board ship. And the ship goes out of the harbor and faces the ocean. And the picture generally as portrayed is this. That at first the sea is delightfully calm. And the sun is shining. The band is playing. And we look forward to a marvelous voyage. It's the first time we've ever taken it. We've never been on board before. And we're looking forward to it with the keenest anticipation. There are many other passengers with us. And we're looking forward to this marvelous time. There we are in our youth, I say. And off we go, quite confident that nothing can ever go wrong. Nothing will ever happen. There'll never be another cloud. Nothing can hide that gorgeous, marvelous, bright sunshine. It's impossible. It's so powerful. And the sea, well, why, it's as smooth as silk. Nothing can ever cause a ripple on the surface of such a smooth sea. We are going to be fortunate. We've heard of people in the past who got into trouble, and we've heard of storms and the need of lifeboats and things like that. Ah, well, of course, they were a little bit unfortunate, but in our case, it's obviously going to be so different. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing will go wrong. It's going to be marvelous, and we settle down. There are new discoveries. There are new mechanisms on the boat. There are things which our forefathers knew nothing at all about. And with these things, well, it doesn't matter very much what happens. You remember, in the case of the Titanic, for instance, there we were given the assurance that nothing could sink that ship. It was absolutely unsinkable. Well, what about icebergs, said somebody. Well, they said, of course, we know all about icebergs, but this is a ship inside a ship. So that if the ship should crash into an iceberg, the outer shell will go, but the other shell will still remain. The unsinkable ship. The latest advances of science 
Well, we are always advancing, and therefore we have every reason for believing that nothing will go wrong on this trip, on this voyage on which we have embarked. Am I just romancing? Am I just uh, drawing on my imagination? Oh, consult your own life. Go back to your own experience. We all start with this imagination that for some reason or another, things are going to be different with us. And off we go. Well, that isn't the end of the story, unfortunately. Let me come to the teaching, the doctrine, the message, and it's this. We haven't gone very far before we begin to find that that sea doesn't remain calm and smooth. There are ripples. There are disturbances. You read the, the report, you get up in the morning and you look at the report and it says slight swell. Then you go on a bit further and they say somewhat choppy and so on. And on you go from stage to stage and you begin to make this discovery, I say, that well, it looks as if your experience is going to be very similar after all to that which has happened to those who've gone before you. Well, now let me put it to you in a more doctrinal form. Life is not smooth sailing. Now the Bible starts by telling us that. And that is why I say this is the word of God. You see, everything else is trying to persuade us and always has tried to persuade us that it is going to be smooth sailing. The world tonight is still, in spite of everything that's true of the world at this moment, it's still got the idea that somehow it can all be put right and that really there is possible an existence in this world in which there'll never be any more troubles. The world really believes that. It's its fatal optimism based upon its ignorance of sin. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible meets us with a stark honesty at the very beginning and says life is a place of trouble. Life is a stormy sea. Well, you may not like that. You say, no, that's that depressing. Well, my dear friends, it isn't a question of hurling epithets about. The question is, what are the facts? Read your history books. And bring their report to the light of the Bible and the, and the light of other literature. Here's the truth. Life is a stormy sea. And we go on in this condition. Why? Well, the cause of the trouble, says the Bible, is still the same. It's what it calls sin. It wasn't meant to be like this, but it is like this because men's original disobedience. Oh, how simple, how direct is the scripture? People are saying, this is the trouble, that's the trouble. No, no, says the Bible. The trouble is man's disobedience of God and nothing else. That's the thing that started the disturbance. That's the thing that set this force going. And God's reply to that, as it were, in his justice and in his holiness. He causeth and commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind that lifteth up the waves thereof. It's a profound mystery, but it's true. I say the world was never meant to be like this. Life was never meant to be like this. It is like this because of man's sin and his disobedience. Now then, but come, let me particularize. Someone may say to me, what do you mean by these storms of life? Well, let me put it in a more experimental manner. Shall I remind you of some of the things that have put you into this condition of reeling and staggering like a drunken man? Shall I tell you what has constituted the billows and these tremendous waves in your life and that have rocked you right and left and backwards and forwards? What are the things that shake us? The storms of life. Well, think of those within you to start with. Think of the storm of passion. It shakes you. Haven't you seen people shaking in a passion? Trembling in a passion. The storm, the wave of passion, anger, temper. But what are the waves, the billows of that other type of passion? Lust. Lust. How are you moving you? 
I don't feel well almost driving you, carrying you along. And you're like a little ship helpless. This world, this billow has blown you over as it were and carried you helplessly. There's a hymn that talks about the storms of passion and self-will. Have you seen a child standing up in rebellion against its parent, wanting to do something, and the parent says, no, it's a storm. It does nothing but the rising of these great billows, hurling backwards and forwards. The child is in the grip of this, the parent perhaps at the same time. Passion and self-will, these things inside us, I mustn't keep you. Work them out for yourselves. Haven't you known these things inside you that rise as veritable waves? They come in attacks upon us. They seem to rise from nowhere and yet they're there. And we scarcely know where we are and what we're doing. But think of those that come from the outside. Think of temptations. When you're going along apparently quite calmly, you may be in an excellent frame of mind. You may have been reading your Bible. You may have been praying to God. You may have been spending your time with some loved one. You may have been talking about the most beautiful things in life. You may have been looking at a great picture. You may have been listening to some marvelous music. And you're calm and you're quiet and you're walking home. And suddenly you're hit and struck by a wave of temptation before you know where you are. This is life, isn't it? You didn't think there was going to be a storm that night, did you? No, no, the disciples didn't think there'd be a storm when they took the boat that day on the Lake of Galilee. The characteristic of that lake was that suddenly from nowhere a wind would come and the storm would have been upon you. And so it comes in temptation and suggestion and innuendo in this city of London and elsewhere. These waves of temptation that meet you so unexpectedly in life. But think of it in terms of trials and troubles. Think of it, my friend, in the form of illness. Think of it in the terms of some financial loss or the loss of your work or something like that. You were going on maintaining the even tenor of your way or to use the nautical comparison again, maintaining an even keel and you thought that all was well. Suddenly, down you've gone, you're taken ill, you're lying on your bed and you're wondering what's going to happen next or you've lost your post or you've lost your money or somebody's let you down or that there's been some treachery. Oh, I could keep you all night in giving you a list of these various things that come in these various ways and attack us. And then, rumors of wars. Actual wars, twice already in this present century. Look at life as it was in the early months, even of 1914. Who would have thought a storm was coming? The seed never been smoother. The prosperity of this country had never been so great. The whole world was advancing. It was in a marvelous condition. Why, we were settling down to enjoy ourselves on the sun deck of life. And suddenly it came from apparently nothing. Something that happened in a little country like Serbia. And the world war came. And the billows were hurling upon us. And we were shaking and rocking in a great convulsion in mid-ocean. And exactly the same in 1939. I needn't keep you in describing it. And what of it tonight? What of it tonight? We're in a stormy sea. We are hearing about atomic powers and possibilities. Well, I needn't keep you. People today are prepared to listen to great philosophers. I understand that Bertrand Russell wrote a, a letter to the Manchester Guardian this week in which he said that unless this crisis of a Formosa is settled, we'll probably all be dead before the end of this year. That's not my opinion, it's his. And if that isn't a storm, what is a storm? You see, they rise, the waves and the billows, and they hurl, and here's the little bark. You've set out in life, I'm speaking to younger people particularly at this moment. Did you ever think you were going to be in a world like that? Or a life like that? These things outside you, and your whole future is uncertain, and you wonder what's going to happen. 
But let me hasten on, for the thing I want to emphasize is this. That what all this leads to is the sense of our being at the mercy of life and at the mercy of the great powers that are operating in life and in this world. You see, the picture which this man gives is a picture of a little boat absolutely helpless. It's at the mercy of the waves and the billows and the raging of the wind and of the storm. Now, I say the Bible tells us that that is what sin always leads to. And that all our lives are more or less like that. We don't master life. Life masters us. We are not in control, but we are being controlled by other forces and factors within us and outside us. We are buffeted and we are being battered. We are being thrown hither and hither. Oh, I know that everybody doesn't agree. You remember what Henley tried to say. He said, out of the night that covers me, black as the pitch, from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. He says it's unconquerable, say what you like. My soul is unconquerable, it's never going to be mastered. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. But alas for poor Henley, he made an admission without realizing it. What I would like to have asked Henley was this, if he was so much and so entirely in control, how comes it that his head is bloody? Why is the blood pouring down his forehead and down his face? In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings, that's the thing I'm saying, under the bludgeonings of chance, He's been bludgeoned, he's been battered, he's been buffeted, he's been bruised. My head is bloody. I'm wounded. The blood is pouring forth from me. The man who sat out in the sunshine and who was so certain that nothing would ever go wrong, who was in charge and in control. But listen to him as he goes on. It matters not, he says, how straight the gate. It matters not how straight the gate, nor how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Poor fool. Master of his fate. Well then I ask again, why is his head bleeding? Why can't he stop the raging of the sea? Why can't he produce a calm? Why can't he arrive at his haven? Is he the master, the captain of his soul? Is he the pilot? Is his engine still working? Is his compass still in line? Was he, what about his logbook? Where is he? He doesn't know. No, no. All that was so written by Henley is nothing but the picture of a man whistling in the dark trying to, leave, to keep up his courage. He's no idea where he's going. He has no control whatsoever over his life and over his fate. And to talk about being the captain of his soul. He's not in control at all. It's the other things. Lust and passion and desire. Temptation. These things. And then trials and troubles and tribulations. That's it. The psalmist's picture is absolutely perfect. What does it lead to? Well, let me tell you. They stagger, they reel to and fro, and stagger like a drunken man. What a wonderful description that is. I'll put it in this form. A man, as he goes on in life and experiences these things, begins to be conscious of a loss of grip and a loss of control. He talked a lot at one time about his willpower and that he could do anything he wanted to do. 
but he finds that his willpower isn't quite as powerful as he thought it was. He's losing grip. He's losing control. At first, it's very light and superficial, but it gets worse. He begins to stagger. Then everything becomes uncertain, and he's reeling about. He doesn't know where he is. He's lost his sense of direction. He's lost his control completely. But the thing I want to emphasize above everything else is this. We are told that they are at their wit's end. And that is the most important message of all. It is just the Bible's way of saying that face to face with life as it is, human wisdom is completely useless. That's all it means, at their wit's end. What is wit? Well, a man's wit is a man's wisdom. It's his knowledge, it's his understanding, it's his ability, it's his power to plan, it's his power to apply remedies, that's his wit. A man lives by his wits, his knowledge, his keenness, his intellect, his understanding. These people, we are told, are at their wit's ends. What's it mean? It means this. They have done everything they can, and it doesn't avail They've thought it out. They say, what can we do? Throw a little of the luggage overboard. Lighten the ship. Pull down a, a sail. Pull up, put up another. Change the rigging. All these various things. Change the course. They've done it all. They're at their wit's end. Now that, I say, is a fundamental proposition of the whole Bible, the entire scripture. It is just to say this. That men in life in this world, as the result of sin, is completely and entirely baffled. Oh, he's been doing many things through many centuries to try to steady this ship of life. Go and read your philosophers, read your poets. Read about your scientific advancements. Read the biographies of statesmen. Go to your international conferences. What are they about? They're simply trying to control the ship in the storm and somehow to produce order and calm. They're doing it still. But the Bible's diagnosis and pronouncement is this, that they don't understand. They're at their wit's end. They don't know the cause of the trouble and therefore they obviously cannot apply the remedy. All their schemes therefore lead to nothing. In spite of their optimistic prophecies, nothing eventuates. Man has done his all, his utmost. He's exhausted all his thinking and his brilliance and still the storm is raging more hotly than ever. Isn't that the position tonight? And so the soul of mankind becomes melted in trouble. The average person today has got a sense of utter and complete futility about life. They're absolutely hopeless. They say we're drifting to disaster. The end must be coming. Nothing can be done. There's nothing left but to be drowned. The utter collapse of civilization. Everything's going down into this final disaster. We are sinking. Isn't that it? Well, the Bible says it is, and the history of the world proves that it is. Is there no hope, therefore? The answer I've already given you, it's here in every one of the pictures. They cry out unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. They were on the point of sinking. No sign of the harbor, no sign of the haven, lost in mid-Atlantic, as it were, and on the point of going down. Civilizations like that, the world is like that, the individual man is like that, he doesn't know where he is, he's lost his bearing, he can't see the northern star, the moon seems to have gone to be entirely eclipsed, the sun hasn't been seen for days, there's a mist in addition to the rage, everything's gone wrong, where are we? We don't know, and we're on the point of going down. But then there are certain people who cry out unto the Lord. And he delivers them out of their distresses. My dear friends, 
That's the whole story of Christianity. That's the story of the coming of the Son of God into the world. When all was sin and shame, when all was lost, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. Take this picture. There is that little ship, hopeless, on the point of going down. The master and everybody have given up hope. The captain has given up. Abandoned ship, hopeless. When suddenly and unexpectedly and in an apparently miraculous manner, a pilot steps on board, and immediately everything is changed. Listen to this dramatic description. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet, so he bringeth them to their desired haven. Ah, says someone, a fairy tale, poetic imagination. It isn't true. My dear friend, it's the simple truth. This is Christian experience. This is the very thing he does. Let me put it to you like this. The most amazing thing of all is that he ever comes, isn't it? Why didn't God abandon the world to itself? It had sinned against him. It had produced its own misery, and there it is reaping the consequences of its own action. Why does he bother? Why has he ever looked? But he does. That's the message. God so loved the world. He sees the ship there in mid-ocean. He sees what's happening. And he sends his only son. He's done it. And what I read is this. He maketh the storm a calm. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ always does. The moment you meet him, the first thing that, you happen, that happens to you is you're conscious of a calm. You know he put it in the form of an invitation, didn't he? He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest, calm, peace. How does he do it? Well, time fails me, but this is the essence of the, of the gospel message, isn't it? The moment in your distress and in your agony you turn to him, you are at once conscious that the whole situation is somehow different. Why? Well, there's something about him. He seems to know. He seems to understand. He seems to have a knowledge. He seems to have a power. He seems to have an ability. Haven't you had some experience of that kind of thing? When you've suddenly been struggling, oh, I can give you endless illustrations. Do you remember when as a child you were trying to work out your problem in arithmetic or geometry or something else and you couldn't do it at all and you were becoming desperate and frantic? Somebody came along who understood and it's all right. He said, now let me see. This is the first line. And then it seemed so simple. The whole thing was solved. Calm. Or haven't you had it sometimes when perhaps you've been faced with some problem and you didn't know what to do and you were at your wit's ends? A friend suddenly comes and he says, it's all right. Now wait a moment. Let me see. And your agitation has already gone. Or it may be, I remember once watching a man trying to do an operation and the poor man wasn't very expert and he was in great trouble and in great confusion. Another man happened to come in. He said, now wait, what's happening here? And then he mopped up here and he opened that and the whole thing became plain. And how simple it seemed. He was a master. And when a master operates, the whole thing seems simple. You feel you could do it equally well. It's the same in every life. The master always makes everything appear to be simple. That's the sort of calmness that he produces. And when in the midst of life you feel you're about to sink, you meet Christ. And you feel at once, here's somebody who knows. Here's somebody who understands. Here's someone who's faced the storm at its most desperate with all the billows of hell hurling at him. But he went through them all and came to the haven successfully and he stepped on board. He's in control. He understands. He masters life. He knows what he's doing. I say I'm troubled about my past. I can't get rid of that billow that seems to be coming from behind me and shaking my little bark. It's all right, he says. I've died for you. 
I gave my life for that sin. I've made myself responsible for you. Your past is blotted out. It's forgiven. And then I say, look at this one coming on the side. How can I live in the present? He says, I'm going to be with you. Look at those coming in the future. I see them coming at me. I must go down. No, no, he says. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Isn't that what he does? It doesn't matter what direction the storm comes from. It matters not where the billows arise. When he's on board, there is a car. Safe in the arms of Jesus. Safe in his gentle breast. Or take it as the Old Testament puts it. In the midst of the storm and everything, when the foundation seems to have gone underneath, are the everlasting arms. And they'll never fail. All the other word he uses is the word quiet, you remember. Then are they glad because they be quiet? What it means is this. His all sufficiency for every occasion and every eventuality. I like the way Paul puts this point. I have learned, says Paul, in whatsoever state I am, therein to be content. Quiet. A quiet mind, a quiet heart, like that man in the 112th Psalm. He's not afraid of evil tidings. Why? Well, he's got a quiet and a peace within that nothing can disturb. He's got a new view of life, a new insight into the whole course of history. He knows that he's right with God, and therefore whatever happens in this world, he's right eternally. Quiet. Then are they glad because they be quiet. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And then at the end, so he bringeth them to their desired heaven. He gives me a new life, yes, and a new sense of direction. He helps me to understand this book, which is God's logbook in this voyage of life. I see my way. I can chart my course. I know what not to, where not to go and what to avoid. I go straight on, and he's with me. He'll never leave me. He's the pilot of my bark. He's with me. I am in him, and he is in me, and he fills me with his spirit. And he'll keep his hand upon me and upon the vessel. Until he has piloted me into the eternal harbor, I generally close the morning service in this church by quoting these words. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. He's going to do it. So he bringeth them to their desired heaven. What's that? God, heaven, eternal bliss. Man delivered and emancipated, right with God, enjoying the glory. That's the heaven. And he'll bring us to it. Once he starts, he never gives up. Once he comes on board, he'll never go away. He'll always be with you. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. It's not surprising that we read that they are glad when they be quiet. And that they rejoice. Oh, it is the characteristic of the Christian's life. It doesn't mean that things are not going to go wrong outside him nor within him. But it does mean this. That he'll never know that desperation again. Even at its worst, he'll have a calm and a peace which the world can never rob him of. He's got a joy which the world can neither give nor ever take away. My dear friend, shall I end by asking you a question? Can you say something like this? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The man who wrote that had terrible sorrows. Four of his daughters were drowned in mid-Atlantic. 
Everything had gone. He lost his money in a bank crash. But in spite of it, though he was in the midst of the hurricane, he says, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still, then are they glad, because they be quiet. What of it, my dear friend? How do you feel tonight? Where have you found yourself in life, in this world? Are you in the midst of a storm? Are the billows of passion and lust and desire and jealousy and envy and anger, are they buffeting and battering you and shaking you so that you're like a drunken man staggering through this world? Are you the victim of the next temptation that meets you around any corner that you may chance to turn? Does your life and your happiness depend upon the people whom you meet or whom you don't meet? Are you a victim of circumstance and chance or are you enjoying quiet and peace? Do you know where you're going? Is the compass still working? Is the steering gear still in order? Do you see the haven? Are you going steadily in its direction? Do you know where you are? Oh, if Bertrand Russell is right, it's an urgent question. If you're not going to be alive by the end of the work of this year, it's about time you knew this. Are you going to end in the haven? If the honest answer you must give to that question is that you don't know, and that you're afraid, and that the billows are in control of you, and you don't know where you're going, well, you've just this to do. You've got to cry out unto him and say this to him. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storms of life be past. Say, into the haven guide. Oh, receive my soul at last. Ask him. Plead with him. Cry out unto him in those words, and he'll receive you. And you'll end by saying, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick, lead the blind. Yes, go on, plenteous grace in thee is found grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Make me, keep me pure within. Thou of life, the fountain art, freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity. Cry out unto him in the midst of the ocean, in your agony and despair, and he will deliver you out of your distresses and pilot you and lead you safely to your desired heaven. Blessed be the name of God. Oh, the God of glory, who so loved us that in spite of our sin and folly and shame has sent his only Son to pilot us through the vine and to bring us to the eternal heaven. Amen.